Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Driven Celebrities podcast. As always, I just want to thank you for your company this week. I really appreciate you downloading and getting your celebrity conversation fix from us. I mean, you may go to a load of other places as well, but I'm chuffed to bits that you've come here. Let me tell you about who's on the show this week, because I'm mindful that some people think I chat too much at the start. So I'm going to keep this as short as we can, OK? Three really interesting people. First up, well... Phenomenal actor. She has had a CV that just, well, it spans theatre, film, television. She's just utterly incredible, the wonderful Francis Barber. Then we've got funny man and presenter. Honestly, this guy has become so big so quickly. I'm really impressed with him. We had to cut so much of his interview because, well, it was just too risky. Even if we made this explicit content... (laughs) We've been told we couldn't include it, so we've had to cut a lot. But nonetheless, I still found him really, really entertaining, the wonderful Stephen Bailey. All I can say to you is you've got to go and see him live if you want to see just how uh, hilarious and crude he can be. Only a positive, I would say. I really, really enjoyed his company. Very, very funny man. And the other guest we have for you, who we've chosen to go along with this week, because one of our promises via this podcast is that instead of just getting a rehash of the radio show, we give you extra with certain guests. We've introduced that now for a few uh, a few shows, and that's how we're going to keep going. And the, the person we're going to go extra with is the son of the world's most notorious uh, criminal, Pablo Escobar. Um, this guy, I mean, what a story he has. His name's Roberto Sendoya Escobar. He is the surviving son of, of Pablo Escobar. And my goodness me, I didn't know anything about him before our conversation. I got sent his book... Um, very shortly beforehand, and I've been just mainlining it ever since. An amazing man, a phenomenal conversation, and the most incredible story. So uh, Roberto Sendoya Escobar is our, our third guest on the Driven Celebrities podcast. Please tell your friends about this show. We're really proud of it. We want to spread the word as far and wide as possible, and we'd love to be uh, your go-to for as, uh, as long as we can. So please tell everyone to download and like and subscribe to the Driven Celebrities podcast. That's enough from me. I've kept it as short as I can. Let's dive in. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hey there, welcome to Driven here on Talk Radio with me, Andy J. We have three incredible guests for you today. We have a funny man, a phenomenal actor, and someone with the most incredible real-life story to tell. Let me tell you who I'm talking about. The funny man is Mr. Stephen Bailey. The phenomenal actor is the wonderful Francis Barber. And the incredible story comes from the son of the most notorious drug lord the world has ever seen. Roberto Sendoya Escobar is my third guest. This is Driven. With me, Andy J. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Right, let's chat to my first guest, shall we? She's the star of Theatre and New Film Trick or Treat, which is out now on Amazon, Sky Store and iTunes. It's the wonderful Frances Barber. Now, Frances, it's so exciting to have such an accomplished actor with a CV as long as my body on Driven. So I suppose the first question has to be, what drives you to succeed, Frances? I think in a way I've never really made any decisions about it. It's just kind of come up. Because I sort of fell into acting almost accidentally. I was doing a, an academic course in English and drama with Danny Boyle at uh, Bangor University and all the boys wrote off to try and get stage management roles and they all got replies and Danny got a job at the Royal Court because he was my boyfriend then. And all the girls, none of us even got replies. That's how much the world has changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just didn't even consider women to be stage managers, whereas now it's mainly women who are stage managers. So I kind of then fell into it and then it just sort of mushroomed from one thing into another. And I didn't kind of have time to think about it, really. I just, like every jobbing actor, you're just desperate for another job. And 
I was lucky enough that they kept coming. So I just kept on being hungry and doing another and another and another and another. But, you know, I didn't have a family. I don't have kids. And I do regret that. That's something that I wished I'd had the experience of as well. But I know a load of my friends who were single mums at the time trying to keep jobs down and trying to go to auditions and, and, and keeping yourself fit and keeping yourself mentally fit and all of those things. So that, that was a huge thing for them to have to do. And I watched them struggle through all of those things. But now they I'm godmother to so many anxious kids, you can't imagine. And great godmother now to some of them. And um, so that has been, you know, it will never replace the fact that I didn't have a family myself, but it's been something. And I come from a large family anyway. I've got lots of brothers and sisters, so that's something else. And I'm, you know, auntie to many, many nephews and nieces. But but the Hollywood thing was a, a strange time because, you know, I only came back three years ago and I went because I'd got a job with William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist, The French Connection. And it was with Tim Roth and Stephen Burkoff and everything. Anyway, that's another story for my autobiography, but it didn't happen. So I decided to stay there. So I stayed for about, I was there for about three years. And I really did like it. I really did. I had two proper English friends that I knew from here. And then I, because I'd do Pilates and whatever, and then Billy Freakin sort of took me under his wing. And so I worked there and it was great. And, um, but in the end, there's only so much FaceTime you can do. There's only much, so much Skyping and I missed everybody and I, I kind of weirdly enough I missed the weather. Oh, really? <laughs> you get to a point where you go, oh, it's another beautiful morning <laughs> in I want it to rain. I want the seasons and it's odd. And it's you know, the whole place is just geared to the the industry. And that after a while is a bit boring and repetitive and it's as much as I was grateful to get a job and to work there and to experience the, the whole thing, there are other things to be interested in, but that to West Hollywood where I lived, I mean, there's, you know, that's it. That's it, really. The whole the whole place is geared to the industry, and, and that, after a while, is a, it, it's, a, it's not... You feel as if your wings are a bit clipped, you know. You think there's more to life than this, I think. It's very full-on. It's very full-on, and I, I did stop eating because I kept going to these auditions and uh, at the time I think I was size 12 and I was like huge compared to everybody else and they were size because size 12 is nothing you know well that's what here I would be thought of as slim but there I was like I I just and it did get to me even at my age and I didn't think it would but I just ended up Stopping, basically stopping eating and just going to the gym every single day. And so I, I, I got hooked into that lifestyle, you know, yeah. that it, lifestyle, it, I should say. It doesn't sound particularly joyful. It was all right. I, <laughs> I, I kind of, li- I mean, in a way, I kind of liked it because it was a whole new discipline for me. And it was kind of, you know, and the thinner I got, the more I liked it and so I bought lots of new clothes, and now I can't get into any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly after lockdown, well, no, that's... Oh, tell me about it. Comfort food, you yeah. know, shit. Making a wonderful salad, and then I go, I don't want it now. I've been shopping for hours. I've been shipped. It's really been bad. I've been... I've not handled it very well at all. I really haven't. So you have a, a, a and, and this I think is fantastic, you have a new film out, and, and this is very telling because one of the things that we, we, we all sort of felt immediately with lockdown was, well, what on earth's going to happen to cinema, to movies? How on earth are we going to see anything new? And, and some, we saw some films, Bond, for example, was immediately put on pause. You know, the release date was immediately thrown towards the end of the year at the earliest, and, and, and we were thinking a lot might follow. But then we saw... Other movies, they were saying, well, do you know what? Actually, never mind. You can't go and see it in the cinema. That's not your fault. It's not our fault. But you are at home. Let's make them available across various different other streaming devices. You know, your, your, your Netflixes, your iTunes, your Sky Store, Amazon, etc., etc. 
And one of these, of course, is your new film, Trick or Treat. And actually, what a tonic. I mean, it must be lovely for you that something new is available to everybody. What's so lovely about it is we made it a couple of years ago and it was very low budget and it was propelled by Craig Kelly, who's the star of it, and Garen Anderson, who is the uh, writer and producer. And he, between the two of them, they raised this money, they got it together, They uh, we filmed it in Blackpool, and Craig kind of got in all his mates, and his brother, Dean Lennox Kenny, Kelly played his brother in the film. Yeah, that's great, isn't and, it? Real-life brothers playing brothers, great. And they've never worked together before. Yeah. And Sean, uh, Sean Parks is in it, and uh, Jason Fleming, and, you know, it's got, it's just got great people in it, and it's is about a man actually going through a midlife crisis, Craig, and then he gets sort of caught up in this fantastical world, which we don't know if it's real or isn't real, if his friends are playing a joke on him or they're not. So there's a whole panoply of grotesque characters, mine included. Yours is terrifying. I play, terrifying. I play Miss Ferguson, who's the head of a mafia in Blackpool, where it's set which is the most filmic city yeah. in the country. I mean, it's the, and it's spooky and dark, and it's the ending, which obviously I won't say, is really shocking, because you kind of think you know where it's going, and then suddenly the rug is pulled, and it's, it's very, very frightening. Welcome to my parlor, said the spider to the fly. <laughs> <laughs> it stands here. Yeah. Well, you're a pretty one, aren't you? But obviously a bit old for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's better. I don't like the surly ones. Oh, the surly ones, they bring out the worst in me. You're going to have to tell me something, Gregory, and no fibbing, mind, because I'll know. And then things will become less agreeable you need to tell me where your brother danny is francis you've been such a lovely guest and like i say having seen you i mean i've been scared of you on screen for so often you know so many times you 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 i mean it seems to be something that's happening right now you're always getting these terrifying characters but you're absolutely delightful villains are so much more interesting to play but it but it does go with the territory that people tend to think i am like that and therefore then when they meet me and they go I love it. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I sincerely hope that we're able to see you again on stage, on TV, on, on the big screen. Well, the the thing that I should be doing now, which I'm 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 they postponed till next year and I think as in Toes Cross is a new play by Stephen Moffat, who wrote, you know, Doctor, oh, Doctor Who and Sherlock. Yeah. Directed by Mark Gatiss. Wow. And starring Reese Shearsmith and Amanda Abington and myself. And it's called The Unfriend. And it's Stephen Moffat's very first stage play. We were supposed to be opening very soon and, uh, in Chichester and then going into town. So fingers and toes crossed because it's such a fantastic play. And we were already sold out, amazingly. Mm. So audiences are going to love it. But I think they they you know, pass the tickets on till next year so that all those people won't be disappointed. And I can't wait to get in the rehearsal room and do it. It's, it's, it's terrific. What a cast. I have got to come and see this. It sounds absolutely incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, let's go. Yeah. Let's get these theatres open up fast, people, because this sounds wonderful. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Fingers yeah. crossed. Don't forget, you can see Francis Barber in Trick or Treat out on Amazon, Sky Store and iTunes now. Now, after the break... A story that I cannot wait to get into. He is the son of the most notorious drug lord the world has ever seen. He'll tell us about the kidnappings, the murders and the hidden millions. He is the son of Pablo Escobar, Roberto Sendoya Escobar, next. Driven with Andy J. It's Driven here on Talk Radio with me, Andy J, the show that talks to celebrities and achievers about what drives them. And I am very, very excited to talk to my next guest, a man who I think, I mean, if I give you a few of the sentences from his story, you wouldn't believe any of them because they're all unbelievable, but also incredibly amazing. And they just happen to be true. I'm very thrilled to be able to welcome 
Roberto Escobar, son of Pablo Escobar. Goodness me, Roberto, what a crazy way to start. <laughs> so Roberto Escobar is my uncle, Don Pablo Escobar's brother. I'm Roberto Sendoya Escobar. That doesn't matter, it's just a small detail. Um, yeah, but uh, it's, there's a very interesting story. And, um, well, it's taken me, well, over 20 years to get it out of my head. And uh, it's a real pleasure to have it out now. And uh, so the world can now read the truth about what happened to, um, you know, uh, back before uh, the Narcos series started. Now, this is the prequel and it's the truth. This is, I mean, it's it's remarkable. You know, Son of Escobar is, is the book that you've written. It's It's been out now. Yeah. You know, plenty of people will have had a chance to read it. Those that haven't got yeah. to it yet, uh, I, I'm sure it'll be uh, <laughs> attracting an awful lot of attention. You know, I've, I've had a good start on it. And my goodness, I mean, not only is it a page turner and a half, Roberto, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's one of those things where every single page, I don't just picture myself seeing it through your eyes, of course, because you, you recount it brilliantly, but I imagine what it must be like for you yeah. to live with that day to day. I mean, it's, it's such, yeah. a, such an incredible story. Well, I'm an artist, as you know, not, an, not really I recognize myself as being an author. I'm a guy with an interesting story that I've written about, and so I'm just writing down my memories, uh, and, and then there's all the research, and this is years and years and years of, of work. And, and you put it all together and you get a story. And then editors who know what they're doing help you with stuff, with tenses and stuff, and, and spelling, of course. My spelling is dreadful. You end up with a book. But it's a massive, massive task. And uh, you know, I, I would just say, if you're going to write a book some, about your life, you know, think carefully about it. It's a big, big deal, you know? Yeah, well, especially if you've lived a life like yours, Roberto. I mean, let's... Yeah, I've had a terrible life. Let's, let's go through a couple of the brushstrokes just for people that are okay. new to the story. You know, it, I mean, there will be some people yeah. out there, very few of them, but, but who aren't aware. Pablo Escobar, of course, yeah. was the most notorious drug lord the world has ever seen. That's, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's a fact. He came to sort of Western attention. I'm talking about people in their 20s and 30s, people in their 40s plus, I'm sure, uh, know the name. Yeah. People in their 20s and 30s will, will be more familiar with him because of the, the Netflix series Narcos, of course, which, yes. which documents the life after your book, as you've established. And yeah. the book begins at, 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 I believe, your earliest memory, which is such a haunting one, which is where you, as a, as a, as a baby, an infant, were rescued following a gunfight. Yeah, so I don't remember all that stuff that's in the book. That stuff that's in the book is a culmination of a series of discussions over many years that I had with my adopted father. What I did remember was the woman in the red dress and bangs, loud bangs, and I remember a bottle of milk on a windowsill and these sort of faint memories that, that I then pressure my adopted father into telling me what these things might mean because they keep occurring in my nightmares. And it culminates in, a, in, in him telling me the truth about what happened and where they got me from and how they got me. Because, you know, I had a lot of questions to ask. And it turns out the woman in the red dress was a young girl, but the dress was actually just, it was covered in blood. That was the problem. Uh, and, and, uh, and unfortunately, she has copped a bullet during the, you know, this uh, sort of special forces raid uh, because these thugs had decided to raid an armored car. Uh, uh, they weren't the big drug dealers that the world recognizes them to be today. They were just a group of drug gangs robbing cars and, and, and stuff like that, which I, I talk about in the book as well. Yeah. And, 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 and eventually they, they take on the big boys, the grown-ups, and, and you know they hide this money in a village. And, of course, uh, <clears throat> basically for most of them, they, 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 they get the money back. And, 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 and the company that Dad is working for, Dad being my adoptive father, um, we, we recuperate the funds that were stolen. Uh, but the results, unfortunately, in the death of a young girl uh, in the house that they raided. And um, there was a little boy left there, a little baby boy. And, and the MI6 secret agent was a license to kill. <laughs> Just like a bomb thing, you know. He, he actually has... The passion within within him to pick up the baby and take him back to Bogota and put him in an orphanage, and then later they decide to adopt the boy. But you know, this comes out in the book as if it all happened overnight, but yeah. it, it happened over a long period of time of conversations with Dad. But but what's astonishing about this, Roberto, isn't isn't just that 
your your real father, your biological father, was was Pablo Escobar. It's it's then that the man who adopted you is, is not a normal man either. You know, you haven't just kind of <laughs> been dropped into a, a normal family, but he just happens to be no. an, 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 an undercover MI6 agent who has yeah. regular contact with Pablo Escobar. I mean, it's, yeah. it's it's a sort of it's just an explosion of crazy. You know, wow. What, yeah, what, what? and and it it is funny because he did have other people from England used to come down and do stuff with him that we didn't know who they were. And it actually, very recently, someone contacted me to say that his father uh, was uh, an SAS under uh, operative working in Bogota at the time with with my dad. So all this sort of weird stuff comes out over the years, and it's quite interesting how you know some of the truth gets corroborated over time when people come out of the woodwork which is quite interesting it doesn't mean much to me but it's exciting and interesting that there's still remnants of that that mission of course you missed out the fact that he's actually sent down to work with a chap called Manuel Noriega who later becomes the dictator of Panama and actually the banker for the Medellin cartel Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I missed it out, Roberto, because there's so much going on. I mean, even yeah, just in the first in the first chapter alone, you know, there's in the pre, yeah. you know, it, there's, there's just so much happening. I mean, it's I, I must say, first and foremost, it's a heck of a page turner. I, I realise it is your. Is it? I'm really pleased and, about it's, that. It's, yeah. a, it's a it's a phenomenal book and made all the more remarkable yeah. because it's true and because you've lived it. And of course, my knowledge is when I was reading the book was that we would speak about it, and I was like, goodness me, what a what an yeah. incredible story. I mean, just just again, yeah. th- there's certain things I really want to come back to, but but just again to sort of to sort of quantify this again to the listener, you know, this is yeah. this is the truth as you uncovered it when you were when you were when you were when you were kind of a young a, a young lad, you know, yeah. and a teenager and so on and so forth. You you weren't effectively the son of Pablo Escobar no. because you no didn't no know no it. I wasn't you didn't know it until no, you were 24. No. That's right, but we had to go and visit this strange fellow in 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 a place called Medellin, uh, where Dad had business things going on, you know, and and you know I was told to go with my bodyguards and sit with these bunch of thugs, and and I felt very uneasy about it, very scary, and and but you do as you told when you're a kid, and you know off we go. And this man puts his hand on my shoulder, and he's a young fellow himself, but all grown-ups are grown-ups when you're a little kid. And yeah. uh, you don't tend to distinguish between ages of people, uh, really, when you're younger. And, um, and you know, so you know, there was one thing that I found quite strange, where this guy says in Spanish to his mates, um, uh, puts his hand on my shoulder and says, you know, ah, mi hijo. And I'm thinking, no. Oh. He's just said that I'm his son, but it didn't ring any alarm bells. I'm only like six years old or whatever. And, and I, I mentioned that to dad and he just sort of brushed it all off. So. But then looking back now, I'm thinking, oh, huh? like, that's fine. It's, I mean, it's so strange. And, and you even allude yeah. in, 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 the, in the book, Roberto, you even allude to the fact that, yeah. you know, whilst you, you did have a lovely relationship with, with Pat, who you call dad, you know, yeah. your, your adopted yeah, father. That's right. You know, yeah, the, we were naughty boys, we were. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you do sort of say, you know, you, you had a lovely relationship with him, but but there may have even been nefarious reasons for him adopting you, not just because he was sympathetic to this baby that he'd rescued following a shootout, but also because mm. as an undercover agent, he's expected to have a family, and here's a fast yep. family for him. Yes, yes. I mean, what happens in the Bond movies isn't strictly right. In the Bond movies, Bond is a single man sleeping with all the beautiful women of the world and, you know, having shootouts and fights. Well, in, in, in the real life, the real life Bonds have families and they have uh, good cover stories, they're directors of companies and, you know, and they have this sort of uh, veneer life of, of a family situation and you're right to say yes there was this ready-made family suddenly appeared but not only that but there are connections that are made later which allows them to decide who to be who to make as the king because they, these people you know they crown this guy rather than him being i mean he's a school dropout with nothing you know uh, much to talk about between his ears in terms of technical ability how does he become a billionaire you know it, it, the book answers that question without treading on too many toes uh, it, you know these people are not capable of becoming even in his if he'd been the most successful, he would have only made a few hundred million. I mean, you're talking about, how, you know, billions and billions. He had to have help, and he did get help. And that's what this, this story is. One of the other parts of the story is about who's responsible for, for making this guy who he was. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Roberto, you know, we could we could delve into 
the story in, in such detail, but there's something that I would like to mm. ask you about, and I, yeah. I and I hope you don't mind the tangent. But, but no, when I was no, reading, no, it, I was I was I was feeling a voice coming through, and I'm, I'm I was sort of mindful as well, you know, t taking you back to the woman in the red dress. You know, you were recounting, you know, your your birth mother's death, you know, which which you, yeah. you did witness, and, and of course all the things that have happened since then, and the revelations that you've discovered, and, and all of that. How, and, and excuse me for such a personal question, but I, I feel it's important. How has your mental health been? How, what's it been like getting your head around all of this? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I ended up on a ward. Uh, you know, I tried to kill myself. I drank too much. Uh, at 93 was a terrible, terrible, terrible year. You know, in January, the man I loved and looked up to all my life. Um, there's a very tearful chapter in the book about it. He dies of motor neuron disease, and there's all the other stuff to go with it. And, but, you know, then my wife dies of uh, a brain tumor, cancer. It's just terrible. And then on top of all that, this fellow in Medellin who turns out to be my dad, my real dad gets shot for being, you know, a gangster and all the rest of it. Yeah. It's a terrible year. And I honestly, it was bad. I mean, no one can tell how they're going to be affected by terrible things. And, you know, lots of people are going through terrible things right now as we speak on the news. The NF put the news on it. It soon grounds you. But, you know, uh, I took to drink and had terrible mental health problems and ended up in, um, you know, Ashford St. Peter's Hospital Mental Health Unit. So uh, I had a couple of weeks on the ward, you know. <laughs> One flew over the cookies nest I was there. Uh, and uh, A couple of weeks is, 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 is you do, you've done very well, mate. I think, you know. Well, no, no. A couple of weeks was to get me to take the medication that they give you, which is right. probably good big, enough to kill you anyway. And, and so they give you this stuff, and then you get used to it, and then you go back into the community, and they help you. And I'm very grateful for the help I had. And it took years and years to recover, which is why I got on on the book, off the book, on the book, off the book. It just took so long to face up to all these issues, you know, and eventually you get there, but, you know, you have to have been made of, you know, steel to get through this stuff, and you have to have help from people who know what they're doing. I mean, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know how you, you take it all in and, and, and you don't kind of constantly become consumed by it. And, and I guess the way you've, you've channeled it is with this, with this book, which I believe is the first in a trilogy, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, I'm now at the and humour. Yes, yes, yes. And humour. I have to laugh about everything. I, you know, if I see if I see somebody dying, I don't know why, but there's something. I'll find something funny about it. I have to deal with it that way, um, because otherwise, you know, you just you just go crazy, stir crazy. You have to deal with things with humour. That's the way I deal with it. Can I ask you? But uh, yeah, I've I've been calling you Roberto throughout throughout this interview. Yes, that's fine. Um, you, you know, your 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 name when you were a child, when you were raised, was of course Philip. Yeah. Who do yeah. you identify as? Who, who are you? Well, my yeah, my personal friends, very personal friends, and my family call me Philip, or my kids call me Dad, or whatever. Um, uh, I'm no doubt they call me a few other things over the years, <laughs> but uh, as, uh, as is their right. yeah, <laughs> yeah, as is their right, of course, yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, so personal friends and family call me Philip because you know I identify myself as that. But uh, it's like a lot of people in, in the world when they've got this other thing going on or whatever. There are a lot of famous people that have a stage name or a different name to the name they have on their birth certificate and all that. But it's a little bit different than me because I've got two sets of documents, my British nationality documents are all sort of Philip Whitcomb and the rest of it. And then I've got my Colombian documents, which are Arepos and Escobar and all that. So I've got this dual nationality and dual sort of thing. Have, but the world will know me in this book as Roberto Sindo Escobar for sure. Yes, yes, of course they will. I mean, I mean, do you have two passports? Is it? Is it? Can you travel with either? No, no I, could, I could have one, but it's pointless having two passports. And anyway, the Great British passport's the best one in the world. <laughs> too right, too right. So, yeah. so when you well, when you when you've been when you when you're born abroad and get get sent to Blighty, you soon realise that. Blighty is the best country in the world, for sure. Yeah, we're we're all proud Brits, that's for sure. So, I am very proud to be British. So when you when you look in the mirror, who who do you see looking back at you? Is it is it Philip or is it Roberto? <laughs> I see some grey hairs on my moustache, <laughs> <laughs> and I think, oh, Julie, my wife, needs to go and get me some dye. No, I I look back at uh, at this guy, and and I just see a mixture of um, you know. Uh, a bit of a heavy old burden, basically, and, and so I don't look in the mirror too often. It's not a good thing to do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah. Now, you, yeah. you know, if if people haven't been drawn to to read the book yet, you know, 
apart from the fact that it's a phenomenal story, you know, there, there's another there's another little hook, isn't there? Which just a little hook. Frankly, you know, you got much better odds with nothing much. than you than you have of, of winning the lottery because the book actually <laughs> contains the code to the missing Escobar millions. Yeah, so if you want to get the millions without, uh, you know, all the sort of laundered drugs money, you know, don't worry, find it. I don't mind about finding millions. I just write a good book. <laughs> no, it's not. I, I didn't. I was only joking. So the reality is, of course, is that on a serious matter, Dad's dying, and I find out. I mean, this is I'm, you know, I'm summarising, of course, but effectively, he's been to infiltrate and gain the trust of these people. He's been helping the boss tuck away, boss who they made the boss, incidentally, helping him tuck away a personal fortune, a personal fortune in his family don't know about. Well, they will. They will now when they read the book. Uh, and this personal fortune has been tucked away. It was tucked away over many, many, many years, and the book has the clues to it. What are the clues? The clues are four lines of code that were written on a back of piece of paper that Dad gave me on his deathbed, literally half an hour before he died. And it's taken me a long time to work out what they are and what they mean, but I still don't know the actual locations. I have geographical areas, and I've been able to work out that it's not cash anymore and all this sort of stuff. And that's all going to be in the second book called The Hunt for the Missing Millions, which I have started. Uh, and, uh, and the code in this book, if you buy this book, crack the code, find the money, buy a yacht. Yeah, <laughs> and the rest. It's a lot of money. I can tell you now, Dad showed me, I saw about $210 million in cash when I saw the, the money. And that, and he told me, as you know, in the book, that he told me that that is just the remnants yeah. of the money they've managed to hide now. And so it's probably close to, I would say, a billion dollars worth of bullion, emeralds, that sort of stuff in five different locations. And there's a picture of the plane they used to transport the money in the book that you've got there in front of you. Uh, and so there's also the lines of code. I publish them in the book and, uh, you know, work it out. And uh, don't get the money. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's astonishing. It's, it really is. It's an incredible thing to think But if about. you want a, an, an amusing picture to put in your mind before we finish the interview, uh, you just imagine me running out of the studio with bits of paper, uh, you know, in New Yorker, saying to my wife, right, make a cup of tea. I've written the next chapter. <laughs> and then so, I, so she sat in the patio listening to me read it. And then her reply at the end, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And then she says, but you've written disembarking too many times. I think you better go and start again. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> it's always good to have a So I'm going to back into the studio back into the studio and get onto the theosaurus and try and find different words for you and, and i spent my whole life when you know trying to find different words the english language is a horrific language to learn it's very difficult but we had a lot of fun and, and amusement and I, I like talking about these things because they were quite funny oh, I think but no funny. there's a secret code to the missing millions the don pablo escobar's personal fortune that the mi6 agent is helping him tuck away and that that money is out there it's cat it's not in cash but it's out there for some of the time so why book get cracking that's what i say you've probably been asked this countless times and you probably yeah. are aware that everyone you speak to will suspect it is the case but have you you i mean have you ever been slipped anything of of ridiculous value just you know by the way here's a little something you know <laughs> Tell us where the money is. Well, no, just no, just as in, as in, like, have you personally been handed, you know, by your dad or by someone that that knew Pablo and knew your connection? Has anyone sort of said, "Hey, listen, someone wants you to have this," and it just happens to be an incredibly high value item? Yeah, you have. Yeah. And did you did you cash it in? <laughs> You're going to say you want to know now. He had what? Yeah. How much? What? What? Yeah, what, what? What? Who? What? Yeah, how? Yeah, I'm turning into Gollum. <laughs> for someone who talks for a living, right? That's quite interesting to see the silence or to hear the silence. <laughs> yeah, no. Um. So, Dad, you know, I did ask him. Uh, uh, of course, you would. You know, you've seen this pile of money in, in this basement in Madrid. You want to know stuff, right? <laughs> and he did give me a little velvet purse. You know, a little silk bag, and inside it was some uncut emerald stones. And then you gave me a few other clues as well, which I still have today, uh, to help me. And so it's, it's obvious that um, a lot of money has been turned into um, that sort of item. 
It's right. easier to transport. You can't, I mean, you know, look, you know, a million dollars in cash is incredibly difficult to carry around. You can't just, you can't just put it in the back of a holder or walk off with it. You, know, you can't do anything with it. It's very difficult to deal with. But as soon as you convert the money into commodities like, uh, you know, emerald stones, bully, and that sort of thing, it's much easier to deal with. And that's his, that was always his style. So that's, that's what you're looking for out there, guys. There it is. The there real it is. missing millions. That's what you're looking for. <laughs> Well, Roberto, look, I'm sure you've heard this from everybody that's read it, from from you know, people like myself through to friends and colleagues and and contacts. You know, the the book is 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 brilliant. I can't wait to read the second instalment and the third. It's called Son of Escobar. But but I don't yeah. know how many people will have said this to you, uh, Roberto, because everyone is so sort of fixated with the story and 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 yeah. the way it's been written and the remarkable nature of your life. But but I would just like to sort of also say that you are a very impressive human being and you have dealt with such yeah. an astonishing load to deal with and to come out the way you have is, is I mean, you know, I salute you. Well, thank you for that compliment. But I will say this, none of this would have, I wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been for people who love me, care for me and health professionals. I mean, you know, I've been helped, you know, on those way, on those, on those, dark nights in an ambulance on the way to hospital, you know, people help me. Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's, an, it's a big effort from all people around me that cared about me. Yes, we are, we are fortunate to live in a world where there are good, good people out well, there who, who do look up. Yeah, and in England, England, where you just pick up the phone and miraculously an ambulance turns up with proper professionals in, the, in there. Mm. You, you can't believe how lucky we are in England to have that. You know, people take that for granted. It's unbelievable. No, you're absolutely right, um, Roberto. I wish you all the very best with the with the next thank you very the next much chapter of your life. I mean, that's a terribly cheesy way to finish, isn't it? But uh, you know, the, the story. Well, we might set. meet one day, you know, on I a desert so. island digging a hole or something. <laughs> <laughs> we can line our yachts it's up mine. next to each other. <laughs> yes, that's it. Yes, <laughs> brilliant. Lovely to talk to you. All the very best, Roberto. You take care. Thank and, you very uh, much. Keep thank writing. you very much. Yes, I will. Thank you. Brilliant. Driven with Andy J. I really don't like spinning at all because I can't bear my instructor, Ian. Right, he's one of those people where he wears a bandana, loves a little mix, very enthusiastic about life, not for me. What I don't like about it is because I go every Wednesday at 9am with Dorothy because she lost her husband last year, so she sees me as a surrogate. What I hate about it is I can get into it. Do you know what? You, you get on your bike, don't you start? And all of a sudden he's like, 80 RPM, fine, babe, can totally do that. And then he'll go, feel the bike! Feel the bike, and I'd be like, "Listen, babe, have you seen the size of that seat? I can feel the bike." Welcome back to Driven here on Talk Radio with me, Andy J. Now, as you may or may not know, every week I visit celebrities at their houses with a transforming studio truck that turns into a TV and radio studio, and I also have a supercar that becomes a chat show studio, and we film videos with certain celebrities that you can see on uh, Talk Radio's Twitter site, for example. And the celebrity that I was with this week is the wonderful Stephen Bailey. Now, he's not only an incredibly funny man. In fact, in, in such a short amount of time, he's become one of the UK's leading comedians and presenters. Well, I mean, it feels a lot longer because there's all the times like we've done the comedy circuit that people don't... Because I've been around for like nine years, but I mean, some people still don't know I exist. But the people I've picked up along the way have been like, oh, he's been around for like two years. Where's he come from? It's like Hull. That's where I've come from. 20-minute clubs in Hull. Do you know, you're so right, though, because it's, it's, I can say you've splashed onto the scene mm. and you're everywhere all of a sudden, but I haven't seen your journey. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah, and also it's like, it's all the shows that I've been fortunate enough to do over the past two years. It feels very compact, but it's like those people were saying no to me for the first six years, being like, you're not ready, you're not ready. And it's like, I remember being like, I just want to do a celebrity coach trip so much. I want to meet Brendan. I really want to meet Brendan. And it got to a point where I was like, I'm going to apply for the normal series. And it was like, you have to, no, 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 you're not quite ready. You're not quite ready. And then I was like, that's it. I need to meet the head of E4 and this will get me on. And I went and met the head of E4 and they offered me another show that was about dating. I was like, I can't, I've got a boyfriend. And then I got this. Were you tempted when they offered you the dating shows? Yeah. Were you tempted to bin off the boyfriend? No, I wasn't like, tempted to bin him off, but I was tempted to have an affair. <laughs> <laughs> what, well, just like the upfront? I always say to him, I'm like, if it pays the mortgage, 
it doesn't count. Like, if I, if I have an affair for free, fine, that's an affair. But if it pays the bills... Yeah, I mean, that's a reasonable... Yeah. It's, it's part and parcel of the rider, isn't it? That comes 100%. And also, you know, because it's TV, they'll roll out really hot men that I'd never have a chance with, so... <laughs> <laughs> would have done it. So he vicariously enjoys it yeah. through you. Oh, he loves it. We did a show recently for Channel 4 that was about relationships in lockdown. And I thought it was just me. And then like the day before they rang and were like, oh, just check. Um, Rich will do it as well, won't he? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and he's a lawyer, like he's a serious lawyer. And I went, um, you need to book tomorrow off work. And a cameraman's coming over. And he was like, yeah, yeah I know you're filming, but I can just sit here and type away. I went, oh, no. Um, you need to be on it now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And also you don't get paid. I'm the star. That's amazing. Yeah. Let's talk about you because when you, when you burst on the scene, as you say, you know, you've obviously been working the clubs for ages, but, but at what point when young Stephen was young Stephen, mm-hmm. you're still very young in, in my eyes, but when, so you were, when you were young to you, at what point did you think, I'm actually really very funny and make people laugh. I can do this as my job. Well, I never actually realised that. I didn't have any interest in showbiz at all. In my head, like 14-year-old me thought I was going to have a wife, two kids, live on the estate I grew up on, but I was going to have a semi-detached and not one of the terraces, and I was going to be a lawyer. That's honestly what I thought was going to happen. Seriously? 100%. And then... At 14? Yeah, I really thought that's what I was going to do. I have a degree in French and Spanish, because I was like, mm, imagine if I could do, like, law abroad. That would be, like, such a skill. Wow. So I was like, I was going to do French and Spanish, and then I was going to do like a master's in law and do legal training so I could do it. But by the time I got to French and Spanish, I'd fallen in love with um, Holly Willoughby, and she was hosting Extra Factor. And I just remember her doing, I think she's such a brilliant presenter, even though I'm not allowed anywhere near her and have yet to meet her. But I thought, she's so brilliant, and she just looks like she's loving it. And even if she's faking that look, that's how good she's at she her job. She well. Yeah. 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 And I was like, oh, I really want to do that. Like, how? F- like, I'm a fan of The X Factor when it was around. And I would watch it. And do you know when they're asking, all, like, when Holly's interviewing them afterwards and taking the mic a little bit, I was like, this is great. This is exactly what I should be doing. And then I did nothing about it. I finished my degree. And afterwards, I was like, how do you do it? How do you do it? And... Um, I just read somewhere that Holly had worked on a reception at a TV production company okay. and was kind of always trying to audition or send in a tape mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, I was like, oh, I'm just going to write to the head of every TV channel and see what happens. And the head of Channel 5 wrote back and uh, I went and met him in London. And at first of all, they were like, oh, his assistant messaged me and was like, you, I need you to come in. And, and it's not the head of Channel 5 now, but then he was like, you need to come and meet him and um, he'd love to have a coffee with you and see if he can give you some advice and da-da-da-da, because I'd, I'd really been bullshit being like, I mean, I don't have nepotism, and it's all about who you know, and I don't know anyone. Brilliant. Like, I'd really called it out. Brilliant. And um, not knowing that if I did that now, you would not get a job, so I don't know how it ever worked. And he invited me down, and I was like, well, I'm not coming all the way to London just to have a coffee with someone. That is a lot of money. Then they paid my ticket. No then I came, and then I got a job as a runner, and then when I was a runner... People kept going, do you know if you want to be a presenter, you should try comedy because you're really funny. And I was like, I, I don't want to do comedy, I just want to be a presenter. And then they were almost like, look at Steve Jones and how beautiful he is. That is not what you look like. Go and be a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how it all started. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So like, I definitely got into the point where I was like, I want to do it. But it wasn't anything I grew up being like. I so you weren't that guy that was like everyone telling you you're funny all the time, you're the funny one in the pub with your friends and so on. That wasn't you. Well, I was the funny one, but I just never thought of it being a job. Like the idea of stand-up, I'd never been... The, only, the first time I saw stand-up was when I was on the bill. I'd never seen it before. That's ridiculous. Yeah. What did you think of it? I thought it was absolutely terrible. And I thought <laughs> I was the funniest. And then like, the more you get into it and go, oh, I need to watch more, I need to hone my craft, I need to learn, then you go, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not quite as good as Kevin Hart or, you know, like... <laughs> I don't sweat as much as Leo. Yeah, I don't... I'm not... I'm nowhere near as good as Sarah Millican yet. And that's when you really was like, oh, if you want to do it, you have to focus and just get on with it. This is really, really interesting. I had this kind of vision of, of little you 
writing jokes. I mean, you said at 14 you thought you were going to get married. So what, you didn't even realise your sexuality at that stage? I think I was so, like, I grew up on this really tiny council estate and no one ever left. Like, people went to the pub there. I'd never met a gay person. I'd never, you know, even when it was on soap, it was like this big thing. And then half the time they'd end up going back to being straight or whatever, just from all <laughs> the storyline. So I never really understood it. No one in my school was, like, gay. So I didn't get it. Like, I knew I felt... And, because I didn't really know about sex and stuff because I was only 14. Like when we were in PE getting changed, I thought, oh, Daniel's well fit. But I, didn't, I just didn't know what it was. So I just thought, I'm going to have a BMW. That's what I was aspiring to be, not my true self, but just to have a BMW because my parents always had like clapped out cars. Wow. Like fourth hand. This is very interesting, yeah. Stephen. This isn't the journey that I was anticipating at all. And, and this is why I love talking to people. Because, yeah. Because, you know, you, you just... We never know. I mean, the whole point of this show, Driven, is to show everybody that we're all just one human. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has their own challenges and their foibles and their battles to fight. And people that sort of, people that are in the public eye are no different yeah. on any level. And actually, you know, you, you've had the most normal of backgrounds in inverted commas. That you well, I always imagine. say that because I always get really annoyed when people make punch down to like working class people. Like more than anything, I hate when like a southern, rich, middle class, actor is classed as a working class person because there's loads of working class actors out there yeah. it's just you might have to look for them rather than them come to the you because they can't afford to come to you and it used to really annoy me because especially when it's like it is the jokes punching down or it's like oh what are we like because i'm always like mm, i've never had to come out because everyone's just let me be me so it's like all i did was bring a boyfriend home one day that's <laughs> what it was like i wasn't like guys we need to big conversation let's get the quality street out in case anyone needs a sugar rush during this this is it and it was like no one you know i spoke to my mum about it like literally a week ago and i said to her i was like why do you think i never need to come out and she was like well you were always just this so there was no need to and i was yeah. like great like so i'm always like come on they've got more emotional intelligence than like people in chelsea where we are who are like you know this is a need for people to come out and yeah and you know i understand why people do come out but it no, was just never it was never a fear let's put it that way in my life it was never a, a worry to come out whereas i understand why in other people's that must be down to parenting as well though. yeah i think yeah. it is and i think it's down to a sense of community yeah like people just I, you see the it. thing is, i mean i'm a dad i've got two boys mm -hmm. And they're very young, so it's irrelevant at, at this stage. But the reality is I would never have any issue, whatever they choose to be or do, so long as they don't want to kill people or hurt them. Yeah. You know, and I always struggle to understand when you watch dramas and things these days where it's such a huge deal that the, the, the son or daughter can't come out to their parent. You know, you see this. And I just kind of think, how, why? Because you only love what you've created. You only love them. So if they're happy, that's all you care about. Well, I think that's a good point. But also it's like... Some people are really are put off by their child being gay or LGBTQ. And so, you know, I always think it's good that dramas cover it, but sometimes I'm always like, show the good side as well. Like show yeah. show the person where who is just gay. And he like he's a baker who happens to be gay yeah. rather than he's a baker who needs to come out for being gay. You mean like real life? Yeah, like yeah. that. And obviously like some people is are kicked out of home because their parents can't accept it. So I, I get it, but I'm always like Let's not just show that side, because I think actually it puts the fear of God into people who want to come out. Well, hopefully the new norm is, it's just the norm. Yeah. You know, that's what it needs to Interesting. be. Interesting. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Yeah. So have you, because what you're describing, it doesn't feel like, and I, I may be completely wrong yeah. here, it doesn't feel like you've had a, a tough life. No, I haven't. I, <laughs> I would say the hardest thing I had, and even it's not hard, is like money, which we don't talk about because we find it vulgar or because actually a lot of people in our industry are rich and yep. from wealth or yep. executives who now have wealth and kind of people forget, but it's like, you know, I remember when my parents really struggled, of, like by the time they paid all the bills and everything, they'd be like, have a fiver left a week. And yeah. in a sense, that's privilege, but, it's, but that, this is what I mean about, I couldn't just hop on a train for a coffee with someone right. when that's where we're from. So it was never, I never, I never felt that and it's actually only being older now I look back and go, we kind of had everything, but we might not have had the best of it. Like I say, and we had like tracksuit bottoms, but it was like two striped Adidas instead of the proper ones. You know, we were clothed, <laughs> we weren't going out in ripped clothes. So it's like, 
No, we didn't have a, I didn't have a hard life at all. Now I live in London, you do look around and go, well, I definitely didn't have an easy one. Would you describe yourself as, as, as always happy? No. No, <laughs> never. If anything, I'm probably a bit more of a pessimist okay. than my character comes across as because I'm a, I'm really am just someone that's... At the end of the day, I just want to like, pay my bills and I just wish the world was fair and it's not fair. And every time... And your BMW. And you my that BMW. Well. That's yeah. all I can't forget that. At the minute, I've got a Toyota Igo and it honestly does a brilliant <laughs> job, but yeah, it's, it's not what I imagined. It's not on the vision board. Because sometimes now it's like, if you get a no for a job, it tends to be like, oh, we've got Rylan. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but what about me? And it's like, no, we've got Rylan. It's like, yeah. yeah. And it's like, I really don't get your point. He's a very good presenter. And I'm a very good comedian, so you could have us both because we're here for different roles. Yeah. So essentially they're saying, you're both gay. You've done so much. Look, I've put a list together and I, I need to keep turning the page when I look at how many things you've done. And I could pick out anything, really, because it's just, it's phenomenal. What's the weirdest one? The weirdest one is the one that's exciting me the most, which is the Takashi's Castle. Oh, yeah, that's Your fun. iconic gig. I yeah. Mean, that's, that's on incoming, isn't it? It's a cult classic. But it's weird because I thought it had disappeared. I thought it had stopped. Nope, it is back. So Craig Charles hosted it years ago, and I remember getting home from university with like you know when you get your dirt, like you've got your chips with cheese and your bit family of bucket of KFC. Yeah, yep. it's just there. You're sobering yourself up. You go to sleep, and you'd be like, "What is happening? I'm so drunk!" Like, and it's back. And what I didn't realise because when I got the job, I was I was really excited because I'd seen it, and I always love something that comes back. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. supermarket sweep and. I'm so excited this back, but I didn't know it had such a following. Oh yeah. And that's what was exciting, because I'm always like, well, no one's watching anything for me. Like, <laughs> I think I'm good at my job, but I just know where I am. I'm no Holly Willoughby. I just thought, with that, I was like, oh, it's great. It's got this fan base already. Yep. And I'll tell you the hardest thing about that job, just people are falling over all the time, and you've got to find something <laughs> to say about the same thing happening over and over again. Yeah, I see. I did. I'd never yeah. assume that would be a challenge. And because it, it's like, and they're all just fine because there's a hundred contestants. They're all dressed the same. Like, there's just nothing you can pull apart. No, it's amazing. So it's really funny. And that's it for this week. My thanks to my special guests, Roberto Sendoya Escobar, Stephen Bailey, and Francis Barber. Now, next week on Driven, I'm joined by another three magnificent celebrities for a deep dive into their careers, including Gavin and Stacey's Ruth Jones, adventurer Ben Fogel, and Kevin Kennedy. We'll see you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.